0: Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Seth Ferguson. We talked all about multifamily investing. I literally had probably 50 questions I wish I could have asked them, but we just ran out of time, jam-packed with information. So Seth is the founder, of the multi-family investor conference and that's held in toronto it's a pretty huge event and he's got some high profile speakers there this year and lots of networking opportunities it's going to be in may i definitely plan on heading out i've got my ticket already and i hope you enjoy the episode hey seth i just want to welcome you to the calgary estate investing podcast i know you're super busy
1: thanks for being on the show yeah, no, really excited for this. Uh, I was in Calgary last year. Uh, actually, that was back when the, the forest fires were really bad. So I remember landing and then it was like a haze everywhere. So that, that was my last year in Calgary. Actually,
0: Alberta and BC for almost uh, probably three years, three summers, we got hit pretty hard. And uh, last year wasn't quite as bad, but there was a couple of years where it was yeah, pretty toxic during the summer at times.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was a uh, first time, first time there, obviously I, I traveled for hockey uh, in and around Alberta. So yeah, no, it, it was nice. But uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, chatting with you today.
0: Yeah, me too. So can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? I know you, you have a real estate investing background. Could you just start off maybe there and let our listeners know how you got to uh, multifamily?
1: For sure. So basically, I started in uh, real estate brokerage, uh, selling houses, that's how I got into um, real estate. And before that, I was trying to make the NHL as a hockey referee. So I I did that and then got into real estate brokerage selling houses. Then I transitioned into doing single family uh, home investing, um, duplex conversion, that kind of stuff. And then at some point, uh, when my son was born, I realized that I needed to do more and and really scale the portfolio and single family investing wasn't a good fit for me. Um, And then I transitioned over to multifamily. And and since then, it has been insane. You know, I'm the crazy guy who launched a real estate conference in the middle of a pandemic. And we've got a lot of other uh, really cool initiatives that we're working on right now. So it's been a whole lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's super cool. And I know you just kind of really summarized quickly, but you actually built a pretty good
0: size portfolio before you switched over, didn't you?
1: It was okay. Like, like at the time, it was myself and my partner at the time, and uh, we were buying properties in and around the Greater Toronto Area, which is kind of where we lived and, and where we sold real estate. Um, it, it wasn't fantastic. Like, we were back then. I had the mindset that you know it was better to own everything yourself. Uh, so we never. Joint ventured with anybody. Like, we never raised money for deals. So it's like, hey, listen, like, I was making good money at the time, right? So it's like, hey, you know, if you're earning, you know, half a million bucks a year, that's where do I dump the money? So it'd be like, okay, well, we'll buy a property here or we'll do a duplex conversion, refinance it, and then dump the money into another place. Like, it wasn't at the time I I didn't have the right, like, I didn't understand investing like the way I do now. I would have done things very differently. It was small because it wasn't built to be scalable. Like, sure, like, you know, in the GTA, like a house is worth a million bucks. Like, before, like a, a cardboard box is worth a half a million bucks on, on the street corner in, in, in Toronto. Um, so, so sure. it's a good portfolio, but the problem was I was equity rich and cash flow poor. So, we had all this equity that built up, but the cash flow was non existent. Uh, and that made it harder to finance and and pull money out. And, and it was just, I built myself an, an anchor. Uh, rather than like a rocket ship. And that that's all those reasons, plus more prompted me to switch over to a multifamily. Nice. And did you end up
0: selling everything or did you keep some in your portfolio?
1: Oh, oh wow, this is getting into another story. So <laughs> that's a totally different story. So um, that partner um, who I was with at the time decided to do some pretty crazy stuff, like uh, empty out the bank accounts and take the money. And um, so all that portfolio got sold off. Because of that, and um, obviously there was a, a separation involved uh, with that as well. So basically, I, I started from scratch all over again um, a- after that uh, after that uh, gong show of a situation. Yeah, no kidding. Before we dive into all things uh, multifamily,
0: I gotta hear about the NHL ref thing. So, what inspired you to do that, and then what happened? Like, was it just a it's just something you decided you didn't want to do, or was it like the barrier to entry? What ha- how did it happen there?
1: Yeah. So so I had played hockey, started refereeing when I was like 12, oh no, 13 years old. Best part-time, part-time job you, you'd ever have. And I actually was pretty good at it. And I was like, you know what, like I'm going to go farther refereeing than I am playing. Uh, so might as well just pursue it. So I ended up um, in the States, did uh, some pro hockey, you know, I worked like seven different leagues down there. And it was really good, but I saw that, you know, guys were still chasing the dream into their early 30s. And I was really, young. I was like 20, 21 at the time. So I knew I needed a, like a job kind of thing because not everybody makes it. I came back to Ontario, got my real estate license, started selling real estate, uh, but I was still working the OHL. I was also working another other league at the same time. For, for me, like that window never happened. You know, lots, like if I turn on the TV right now, I probably know half the guys on the staff and I probably worked <laughs> tournaments with them or, uh, you know, worked in the OHL or worked down in the States with them. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I, unfortunate, I never got there. I would have yeah. a dream, but uh, yeah.
0: So what's interesting to me is, you know, you said it's an amazing part-time job because my, my son plays minor hockey and, you know, and sometimes the reps make the wrong call and stuff. And I, I sit there and I think, the poor young kid, like it's you know, not making great money, and and like that's unfortunately sometimes the focus. I think they must have such thick skin to stick this out and, and keep doing it. Like,
1: yeah, you you know what? I I strongly suggest any young person get into officiating any sports. Not only do you, does it let you learn the sport, um, but it also teaches you skills that will like you know, for instance, like the thick skin, like you mentioned. Like I have been called like as like a <laughs> kid. Like I had people calling me every name in the book, threatening me, like all this crazy stuff. And obviously, like when you're 13, like it affects you, but then you just get used to it. So now, you know, when I have trolls on the Internet, like it doesn't really matter. Plus, it teaches you, you know, conflict resolution. Like people always get really upset in sports. That's applicable to relationships. That's applicable to business. There's so many benefits that come out of that. But yeah, just to touch on like with hockey the craziest stuff happens with the kids hockey games. (laughs) And this is totally not related to real estate, but like, you know, you look on TV and you see, you know, whoever it is, Paul Maurice losing his like losing his shit on the referee and everybody thinks that's the way it is. No, because at that level, whether it's the major junior hockey minor pro professional, like you see the coaches and players on such a regular basis yeah, you see Paul exploding on TV, but what you don't see is three minutes later, you know, the conversation, hey, I'm really sorry, like, I, I lost my cool there. Like, are we good? That's what nobody sees. So then mm-hmm. happens in minor hockey, people think they have to act that way or, or they let their emotions out. There's a big difference between the professional ranks and how relationships are handled versus minor hockey, where it's just like, my, my opinion, and again, personal opinion, is it's all about um, knowledge of the game whether you're coaching officiating or playing minor hockey you don't have enough knowledge of the sport yet so your your emotions get the best of you cuz you don't have, have the experience to back it up so you know wh- whether it's like a, a new coach they don't know how to handle a bench or handle themselves new official they've never done it before they're learning on the job and then a young player like a 14 year old player will not have the experience level or the experience level in the game that a 21 year old overage or major junior would have. It just doesn't exist. So for sure. Yeah. You know, like not, not real estate topic, but this is something that's very passionate to me. And, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like hockey was great. Amazing. So I'm sure all, all
0: those skills and, the, and lessons learned you, you've applied to your business and to uh, multifamily. So now let's dive into multifamily. Can you just start off by like doing like 10,000 foot view of what that looks like, what you
1: guys are up to? Oh, yeah. So I, we're actually hard at work right now. Uh, we'll be launching something that will radically change real estate investing in, in Canada um, at the conference. I can't give you too many details, but my focus is on US real estate, right? So uh, when the single family portfolio, when that disappeared, uh, my focus shifted to US multifamily. Number of reasons for me looking in the US rather than here in Canada. And what really stood out to me is like, I had interest in US real estate, a lot of Canadians do. But because of the cross border taxation issue, it's a pain in the butt. Like you need to have some really big experts. And um, it's just not easy. So we're, we're working on a product that's going to radically change how people invest in U.S. real estate and uh, myself and the partners involved. We're, we're all very well-known people and uh, it's going to make a big splash. So that's I can't amazing. fix right now, but like trust me, like it's going to change how people uh, invest in U.S. multifamily from Canada. You're going to actually announce this at the conference in May. Oh, is- yeah, it's going to be very, very exciting. So right, right now we're just on the the legal kind of security stuff. Right now we have to get approval, but uh, yeah, I'm so excited. If you can't tell,
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And then what kind of what type of product? Maybe if we start off by just summarizing. Like you know, if you have a double A or A or a B, what type of product are you guys trying to pick up? Or a C?
1: Yeah, for for sure. So so my bread and butter is like Class B value add, right? So I, I find that's the best. Uh, the best of both worlds, right? You're not paying like a double A AA property where you know you're paying a super premium. There's there's nothing to improve on the property, but you're not buying a C class asset where you've got more of a transient tenant profile. It's a little bit rougher. Like the amenities aren't there. I think a a B property is is like the best in the middle, um, where you've got the risk and reward and everything kind of lines up. Um, so yeah, a class B value add, that's our focus as well. So. Uh, we play well in that hundred to three hundred unit range, um, and, and certainly that, that's what we're we're focusing on uh, right now in in key markets. So, like in the southeastern U.S., Texas, um, you know, I, I feel those markets have a lot of runway left. The drivers that play in the market are are very strong. Um, you've got you know the job creation. You've got even like government policy helps into that. You know, in Ontario, we've got rent control. You know, BC the same thing. Um, I dealt with that with the single family portfolio, but um, for all those factors, um, that's why we're focusing there. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Can you describe what a basically a typical uh, Class B building would look like in the US?
1: Yeah, well, well, we've got all sorts of different types of properties. You know, thinking of in the Toronto area, you drive down the street, you're not going to see what's called a garden style apartment, right? Garden style is where you probably have two or three stories. Um, You've got lots of grass, you've got some yards, you've got trees. That doesn't exist because the land's so expensive. So you know, in a more populated area, you'll have mid-rise to high-rise buildings. But in the U.S., the markets we're looking at, um, I'm a big fan of the garden-style product. Um, I think it's great for families. You've got green space. It's more spread out, and I, I prefer that over a high-rise, uh, just from a, an aesthetics and um, quality of life type of situation for for the residents. So um, that's what I, I tend to gravitate towards is the garden style. But uh, you know, there's a million ways to slice and dice multifamily. Like I've got friends who have portfolios in high-rise assets. Uh, I've got friends who do mid-rise. Like uh, there's so many different ways and niches uh, within multifamily to make it work.
0: For sure, is the age kind of play in there too? Like is it you're looking at maybe like a 1980s, early 90s
1: type building? Yeah, yeah. So this is a great discussion because uh, you know we just covered the like, different types of asset, right? You've got garden style, mid-rise, high-rise. Now we're talking about the the class of asset. So, you know, the class of asset is everybody's is going to be a little bit different. uh, But generally, like starting at the top, double A property that is the in a major metropolitan center, the very best location you can get. The building's brand new, like it needs no work. Like that's your traditional double A asset. Like you're going to pay a premium, but you're getting the best location. Think like downtown New York, downtown Seattle, Vancouver, uh, Toronto. Um, then you've got a class assets, which are probably built within the last 10 years or something that's being renovated up to that modern standard. Good location, you know, not a lot of work it's stabilized. a Class B asset, this is where we get a little bit older. you know, generally like 20 years old, something around there. Uh, so you may end up uh, with, you know, a late 90s, uh, kitchen in there, early 2000s kitchen, and uh, you know, obviously, you can take an older asset and renovate it up to a B, and then Class C, you know, amenities are dated. There's more deferred maintenance. You know, the amenities are not what's typically provided today. So you may have a swimming pool, but you're not going to have all the stuff that a brand new build would have. That's like a Cliff Notes notes version of it. <laughs> and obviously, like one thing I tell everybody is, you know, one person's Class B could be another person's like. A minus, like everybody has a slightly different take on it. So you never want to just, if a real estate broker is talking to you and say, Oh yeah, this is a solid, like you can move this from a B minus to a B plus. Well, that's their opinion, but make sure you form your own opinion too. Uh, Cause everybody will be slightly different.
0: It's very subjective. Very much so.
1: It's good in the sense that, Hey, if we're talking, I say, Hey, I've got a solid class B building, you generally know what, what I'm talking about, but in terms of specifics, like a C plus versus a B minus, like, you know, what is that? Like it it can swing either way. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see
0: how, you know, likely on the selling side, they're going to give it a bit more, you know, a higher score than the person that actually evaluates it on the buying side. Right.
1: Uh, Of course. Right. Why, why,
0: why wouldn't you? (laughs) It's kind of like having the shiny, uh, perfect photos of a house and then you actually walk through it and you're like, Oh, this house doesn't look anywhere near like the photos. Exactly.
1: But it's good because now you can communicate like once you, once you have an idea of uh, you know, the different asset classes, you can easily communicate with appraisers, sellers, buyers, brokers, insurance, like everybody's speaking the same language, which is why having these classes is such a good thing,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then why the 100 to 300 door kind of range is what you're looking for?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, it all comes down to economies of scale. You know, a a lot of people will uh, start off in that, you know, 20 unit range by a 10 unit building, 15 unit building. At that scale, you're not really taking advantage of everything multifamily has to offer. The reason I say that is if I compare a 100 unit building to a 20 unit building, a number of things are different. Number one, the type of debt you can place on the asset is different. Uh, Lenders will give you different terms uh, for the larger asset because it's more stable. You will probably get uh, non-recourse debt, um, which is an advantage rather than recourse debt. Um, You will probably get an interest-only period because of the asset and its size and in what's more standard in that that class. Um, Also, management. A a 20-unit building, you're not going to have a full-time manager. You won't have full-time maintenance staff. At 100 units, you've got a full-time leasing agent. You've got your maintenance uh, people. Uh, plural, you, you've got your administration staff that are working full time at the property, so it, it's more like a business. Like one thing I say is, you know, we're in the real estate investing business, but the business just happens to be tied to real estate. Like that's that's what we're buying. We're buying a business. Um, so the larger properties come with the staff, and, and you know, your expense ratio per unit is going to be a whole lot lower. Um, you know, vacancies. Um, talking about stability, five vacancies in a hundred unit building. That's expected. That's the cost of doing business. But uh, you know, five vacancies in a 20-unit building, there goes a quarter of your revenue, um, and, and it becomes a bigger deal. So it's just you know working uh, working at a scale where it's actually a benefit to you. And, and we're looking to provide a better product for investors, a more stable product, and also generate cash flow. Like if I raise the rents $25 per unit on 100 units or 200 units much bigger impact than uh, doing that the same thing on uh, 20 or, or 30. Yeah,
0: yeah, that makes sense.
1: And then from a
0: strategic standpoint, are you guys doing like a, a burr strategy where you renovate, and you hold, refinance, or are you doing more of a flip strategy?
1: Yeah, so like there's two value levers in multifamily, right? You've got your physical improvements. Uh, so that's interior renovations, exterior renovations, amenities, that kind of thing. And then you have operational improvements, and that can range from the marketing and branding of the property, raising the rent, uh, bringing in ancillary services, maybe it's a trash pickup fee for 25 bucks a month, covered parking, that kind of stuff, all the way through um, contracts. So renegotiating your pest control contracts to insurance, um, all that kind of stuff. So whenever we're looking at a property, we're looking to uh, work those two value levers to uh, boost the NOI, which in turn is going to increase the value of the asset. So um, I w- typically, in a larger uh, multifamily deal, but this certainly applies to smaller ones too, you're going to stabilize the asset. You're going to take it from where it is today, implement all your improvements, and that's going to stabilize it. On a larger building, you're probably 18 months, let's say 18 to 24 months. Sometimes you can get it done in less. And so that's going to be your stabilization process. And once it's stabilized, you may refinance if, if you can. You never want to bank on it. Right now in the current market, perfect scenario why you don't want to bank on refinances. And then generally, you want to hold the asset and manage it typically you know five to seven years, let's say, and then you'll sell the asset and then start the process all over again.
0: Okay. And there's there's some sort of depreciation advantage that you
1: guys you're using, right? Is that why that timeline is set to five to seven years? Well, there's a couple different things at play. Number one, depreciation, especially if you are a US based real estate investor. uh, You've got depreciation and then you've got bonus depreciation. Legislation's changing on that. So you can't claim 100% anymore. But basically, it comes down to the time value of money, right? So I could take my depreciation in the US over 39 years and get credit every year for that. Or because I know a dollar today is more valuable than a dollar tomorrow and a dollar 10 years. 15, 39 years from now, I can front-load that depreciation through what's called cost segregation, and I can get more tax benefits today, which in turn will put more valuable dollars in my pocket. So cost segregation in a nutshell is basically you're stripping everything out of the real estate deal that's not the actual building itself. For instance, uh, sidewalks, um, you know, driveways, they're depreciated over 15 years, not 39. So you can front-load that. Uh, flooring, electrical wiring, window coverings, appliances, that's five to seven years, not 39. The building itself depreciates over 39 years, and then the, the land does not depreciate. So It's just using the tax code. And again, in the US, it's different uh, than uh, than here in Canada, but that, that's one component. So obviously, yeah, we want to take advantage of depreciation um, 100%. The other thing that I think a lot of investors don't think about is the velocity of capital. So a lot of investors will focus on, hey, what's my return on investment? But I would argue that it's more important to focus on return on equity, not return on investment, right? If I invest $100,000 and I'm earning X amount of return, that's great. But what's my equity? Like, how much equity do I have at play right now? And what's my return on the equity? Is it more advantageous to remove my equity from that deal and redeploy it in another deal? right? Is my money working as hard as possible? So having that velocity of capital is really important. Why would I stay in a deal where I've done 80% of the work, I've got 80% of the return, why would I hold on for another three to five years for an extra 20%? It doesn't make sense. Velocity of capital, take the capital out, realize the gains and redeploy it and then work it so I, I achieve those 80% returns again. That's where, you know, especially myself, I learned a lot in making the transition from single-family investing, where that was a mindset: "Hey, we're going to own this for forever." To more of a institutional type of approach: "Hey, like, how do I take this investor capital and really make it work hard and and deploy it in a very efficient way?" Um, so, big mindset shift there. But but yeah, like, focus on return on equity. Is your equity working as hard as possible uh, rather than return on investment? Uh, a great answer. And how do you go about finding a
0: property to invest in? And then can you maybe st- just touch on some of the evaluating steps?
1: Yeah, for, for sure. So how do we find deals? This is a hot topic. And uh, I'll be very blunt. Uh, real estate brokerages control 95% of the inventory out there. So chances are you're dealing with real estate brokers. Uh, if somebody's listening right now and, and they don't understand how commercial real estate works, it's very different than uh, selling houses. Everybody knows, you know, in Canada, realtor.ca, or realtor.com in the US, um, very different. If somebody's selling their house, they list their home with a great agent, hopefully, you know, it gets put on the MLS service, and then that's where you get your traffic. Commercial uh, real estate operates very differently. It's very common for potential listings, like we call them pocket listings, right? Like, the broker knows somebody who is interested in selling they introduce a buyer and the deal gets done and the public has no idea the deal even happened um the the best commercial real estate deals happen that way if a deal ends up on loopnet uh chances are the brokers inner circle passed up on the deal it's probably not a great deal so commercial is very very different like every week you know brokers are sending me deals it's they're not publicly available. They're like, hey, like I know you're looking for this type of asset. I just spoke with this seller. We're going to list it in three weeks. Like you want to mm-hmm. crack? Um, so so that's how it happens online. It's really sexy to say, hey, like you know, just pound like go direct to the seller. Like this is how you grind and hustle. I don't know if I'm thinking about uh, you know making the most of my time. If I know 95% of the inventory is with brokers, I'm probably going to focus there rather than than trying to grind for five percent. Uh, So if anybody's starting out, it's all come, it all comes down to broker relationships. And then to go on to the second part of your question, how do I actually analyze deals? Uh, This is a very important subject. I I just, I was in Ottawa last week um, doing a talk on on the subject. Underwriting, like you really want to focus on on three periods of time. And um, I know we don't have like four hours to do this, but (laughs) when you're underwriting, focus on three periods of time. I call it the three T's of underwriting. The first T is today what is the property like today? What is the current situation? Second T is tomorrow. So where can I bring the property to uh, to tomorrow? So that's when, when it's stabilized. What can I do? And then the third T, I used to call it the exit, but that wasn't a T. So I changed it to terminus, which is the end. So what what are things might look like when I sell, when I exit? Um, if you can answer those three questions, obviously, there's a lot more that goes into it. But if you can break down the deal into today, tomorrow, and terminus, that gives you uh, three times in the property's you know lifespan or life cycle, however the the deal cycle that you really have to figure out to figure out like you know what the does the deal work, um, is it viable? What kind of returns am I looking at?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And is it similar to? I'm I'm more familiar with uh, residential. But so once once you find that property, you get the lead. You put uh, offer in. You're going to do uh, inspection, that kind of stuff. And and can you just
1: maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the same thing applies. Uh, so uh, generally, like I follow a process, right? So a deal comes in. Let's say a broker today sends me a deal and says, "Hey Seth, like I think you know it's a 150 unit building. It's kind of up your alley. Like you want to take a look." I do a first pass of underwriting. So basically, it's okay based on the information I know right now, more or less, does this kind of meet what we're looking for? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, we we move on where we uh, get more information, ask more questions. Like the underwriting process, the analysis process is all about getting more information that will prompt more questions so we can ask the question. Like it's, it's all about digging up information and learning more about the property story. So the first pass will probably prompt some questions, we'll get those answers. If it's looking viable once we make those tweaks, uh, then we go out, go out and walk the property. This is where we're looking to get the best information possible. Because if I'm putting garbage information or guesstimates into my underwriting, I'm going to get garbage out. But if I can put the best possible information into my model, I'm going to get more, more a more accurate guess uh, because nobody has a crystal ball. So we do uh, We do the uh, in, uh, walkthrough, we'll probably bring in contractors just to figure out the scope of work, we really want to itemize that, we'll probably uh, bring in, if we're looking at bringing on a different property manage, um, management company, we'll walk through the property with them, see what they see, a different set of eyeballs, maybe uh, we'll walk through with current management as well, all those types of things, uh, obviously with the broker. Uh, just gathering more information. Then we go uh, do our second pass with underwriting. So we take everything we learned then, redo the underwriting process to change the model um, with all the new stuff we learned. Um, then at that point, you know, you figure out your offer, uh, you submit the offer, If it, then you have earnest money, a deposit, same thing as with residential uh, real estate. Sometimes there's an inspection period, sometimes it's one day, sometimes it's two weeks, depends on market conditions you've got financing involved. Again, like if it's a super hot market, and there's 20 different buyers, well, (laughs) the terms you're going to get are very different to uh, where there's only one offer or two offers. Um, But very, very similar, like you've got to get your financing in place, which you probably should have done um, upfront. and, uh, And you just walk through the process. And then what are some of the key
0: people that you would have on your team during this? You talked about underwriting, that kind of thing. So can you just maybe give us a kind of a high level
1: of that? Yeah. So your team's really important. And the thing I really like about multifamily versus residential, I remember back when I was doing residential investing, you were wearing like five different hats on any given day, right? You were, uh, you were looking at uh, the rents, you were dealing with tenant issues. You were like talking with the bank, like you were looking at properties, you were doing everything Um, with multifamily with larger deals. you can really bring in specialists because the deal's bigger. So you can bring people on that really specialize at one thing. So if it's underwriting, one person on your team uh, will likely be the underwriting expert. Like they will be the spreadsheet person. Very different skill set to the person who's going to have to go out and raise the money. Like very different personality types. Uh, Like sit there and crunch numbers forever. I go nuts. Uh, So I'm better suited to be the 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 front facing person. So you need somebody to underwrite the deal. You need uh money coming in uh from investors, so raising the capital. You need financing. So whether you're dealing directly with a bank, whether it's a local bank, credit union, uh, you know, national uh, type of um, lender, mortgage broker, direct to the lender, however you want to do it, you need financing. And actually, this kind of I've broken it down. So I've got something I call the real estate matrix. So it's like the four key components every deal must have, like since this dawn of time. So number one, you need the deal itself. So you need to have the market, the deal, the opportunity, how you make money. The second thing you need is financing, right? So the debt you need uh, to use leverage in the deal. Third is management. So uh, it's not just property management, collecting checks, it's, well, what renovations are we going to do? When are we going to do them? Are we going to raise rents? When do we exit? When do we refinance? All that is the management of the deal. And then uh, number four is the equity, the, the capital you need uh, to actually like make the deal happen. So when you're building your team, you need to figure out, well, where where each of those four pieces are going to come from. And then you have legal. So uh, you may need a securities lawyer if you're launching a fund or syndicating the deal. Then you'll need a lawyer to actually close the deal. You need your accountant on your team. You need the property manager. Like all these people come into play um, when you're doing like an apartment deal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Way more moving parts than just a residential for sure. However, though, um, almost everybody you'll talk to will tell you doing a, a, an apartment deal is way easier than dealing with like a, a, a duplex or or like a five. <laughs> and and on, on, like I've got friends who are now doing like five hundred unit acquisitions, and they swear up and down that that that's way easier than doing a hundred unit property. Interesting. Yeah. Can we talk about the capital
0: raising and the syndication a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Start off just explaining what that is for the listeners.
1: Yeah, and, and this was something I had no idea about when I was doing like the single uh, family investing. So there's different ways to bring money into real estate deals. And most people will know, you know, self-funding. Like I say, there's four ways to buy real estate. Number one, you can buy it yourself, but most people don't have $10 million sitting aside to buy an apartment building. The second option is, is to do a joint venture. So that's where you partner with a couple other people. Everybody's active in the deal. Um, everybody's contributing, whether it's money, time, you know, effort, whatever it is. And a lot of people, if they're doing duplexes, triplexes, smaller stuff, they'll end up in joint venture agreements and arrangements. A misconception though, and, and this is this drives me nuts, is some people think that, hey, I'm in a joint venture. Let's say you and I did a joint venture together. I was bringing the money and you were going to roll up your sleeves and, and do the elbow grease kind of stuff. A lot of people think, hey, just because I'm just writing the checks, I'm not actively like doing any physical work, that I'm a passive investor. That's the furthest thing from the truth. Because from a legal standpoint, you are just as active as the other partner in the deal. The deal goes belly up. You are just as much on the hook for everything as the person who's actually swinging the hammer or visiting the tenants. There is no passive investing in a joint venture. The lender will come after you. All the creditors will come after you. Uh, no matter what, it doesn't matter if you just signed on the loan and you're active or like bring the money or you're active, like doing the work. It doesn't exist. That's when we flip over to the last two. So, but an example, I, I know a guy, it's him and four other guys, or sorry, him and three other guys. They're all friends. They buy these 200 unit building apartment complexes among the four of them. So they do a joint venture. They're all comfortable with each other, but they're all 100% active in the deal. So, so you can do a joint venture on a house or on a large apartment building. It doesn't matter. But where we start raising capital from investors, where let's say it's a, a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, a tech programmer, these are people who are busy day to day. They don't want to assume the same risk as somebody in a joint venture agreement. It doesn't make sense. And they don't have the time to be active. So now we have to get into some more sophisticated structures Um, that allow for true passive investing. The first is called syndication. And syndication is great for on a deal-by-deal basis. So let's say you and I, uh, we find an apartment building, we know we can make money at it, it's a good deal, um, but we just have to raise 10 million bucks for it. For that specific project, we will go out and raise money from a pool of investors who will be completely passive. They get all these protections uh, from the way the deal is structured. And then you and I, we will run the deal as the general partnership the passive investors will be the limited partnership because their risk is limited. Um, and we'll run the deal. We assume all the risk. They uh they're risking their capital, but that's where where it uh ends. And we we do the deal. Um, that works really, really well. Wall Street has perfected that system. Wall Street does one thing really, really well. They raise a whole lot of money and then and they deploy it very efficiently. So that's syndication. The fourth option is you actually launch a fund. Uh, very similar to a syndication where you're raising money from passive investors um but with a fund it will actually deploy the capital across multiple deals so a fund may have a lifespan of 10 years so the fund will acquire assets divest of assets over the 10 year period it winds up and then the the fund is done at, at the end of 10 years you may have 20 year funds you have you may have funds that Live indefinitely, like, you know, 40 year funds, it, it it all depends on how it's done. Pros and cons between syndication and, and funds, like there's some benefits, um, and some cons depending on what an investor is looking for. So um, that's, that's a very like, bird's eye view of the four different ways you can um, acquire real estate, but uh, happy to answer questions if you want to dive deeper. So the fund
0: is, is it's basically the reach, right? It's uh, no, no, it's, no,
1: oh, no, no, it's no. different. Okay, sorry. I, yeah. That's what I thought you were describing there. No, so yeah, this is a common thing. So with the REIT, basically what you're doing is you're buying a stock of a company, like a publicly traded company. That there's private REITs, but we won't complicate things. So right now, if I want to um buy stock in a REIT, right? Publicly traded, I buy a piece of paper. The piece of paper I'm buying owns a share of a company that happens to own a bunch of real estate. So basically I'm buying a stock at that point. What we're talking in terms of syndication and and funds, like we're talking about private equity, which is ownership. So there's a big difference between me owning a piece of paper that's a stock in a company that just happens to own a bunch of real estate, to, hey, I have invested capital, like I have invested my private equity into this deal, I now get ownership benefits, which include depreciation, I like flow through stuff, I get, I'm collecting the tax law, I'm not getting, you know, it's not just uh, owning the stock, Like, like there's a whole lot more that goes into ownership on this side of things. And also like speaking of just clarity, syndication very different from syndicated mortgages. A lot of people hear hey syndication. No, we're in this case, we're talking about private equity where you're actually investing in a project where you have ownership of the project. A syndicated mortgage is just where a bunch of people put money together and they'll lend it out as debt. Very different. We're not talking about debt, we're talking about equity, which comes with security, like you own a piece of the real estate, um, you're, you get all the all the depreciation benefits, all the ownership benefits that come along with being a real estate investor. So I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for clarifying. They're very different. Yes.
0: And then the investors, they have to be accredited, right? You can't just be asking, you know, just people just showing up and hey, I've got extra money. And yeah, uh, yeah.
1: and I see people do this. Actually, we, we were just doing an interview like three hours ago on the subject. If you go on Facebook on any day, you see people breaking the law as it relates to security. Um, Like people will post a post saying, hey, I'm looking for investors. I'm like, you know, this deal has a 22% uh, return guaranteed, or I'm offering this. Like they're doing something illegal. Like you can't do that. Um, So yeah, you're right. Some investments are for accredited investors only. Other investments, depending on how they're structured, are open to um, non-accredited investors. Um, There's different ways to do it. In Canada, we have the federal laws, and then we have the provincial laws. So you have to make sure you're being compliant everywhere you're you're raising money, and and it's where the money is coming from. In the US, uh, you've got your state laws, but then you've got like the federal, you've got 506B, 506C for exempt markets, and all that kind of stuff. So like my only advice on raising money is, as soon as you have to raise money, Go speak with a securities lawyer, they, and they will give you exactly what you can do, what you can't do. Because once you've already raised the money, or once you've already put out an ad or started started talking with people, it's too late. Like you could be breaking the law and not even knowing it, but the onus is on you. So if you ever have to start raising money, hey, like I need to raise a million bucks for this. Take the time, find a, a, a quality securities attorney, have the conversation, and and get expert opinion on it. Like don't just Google it. Don't talk with your friend. Like talk with a real lawyer who who does this stuff for a living, and and they won't steer you the wrong way. Like they will tell you, they will look at your marketing. They'll say, Hey, yeah, this is good, but change this. Like you want to stay compliant in everything you do. For sure. And there's tax implications
0: too. I, I know we, we're going to be limited on time, and I can't hit you with a thousand questions today, but there are tax implications people have to be aware of as well, right? And when you invest in the states.
1: Oh yeah, th- this is another thing. So every week somebody sends me a message, being like, "Hey, I just invested in this deal. I structured it as an LLC. Uh, you know, I'm really excited. Like, did I do it right?" And the answer is no. You end up paying double tax. As a passive investor, it's so important to work with somebody. As a Canadian, you want to work with somebody who understands the the CRA and how CRA operates and how that relates to the cross border tax treaty. Uh, because ninety nine percent of the stuff you read online. About US real estate ownership and investing is geared towards Americans. But what they don't take into account is well, what does CRA think uh, about this kind of stuff? Uh, CRA does not play well with LLCs. There's no equivalent in the Canadian system, so you won't get credit. Um, So, you know, whenever we're structuring deals or talking with Canadian investors, or if you are a Canadian investor, you have to make sure you're dealing with a quality tax border specialist who can structure you the right way. But you also have to work with an operator, uh, somebody who's doing the deals, who understands how to move Canadian money a- across the border. Um, and that's why I'm so excited for our top secret thing that's being launched. <laughs> soon. Because like, if you're investing directly with the US, a US operator, they won't understand that. And you can get yourself in trouble. Like, I get messages every week from people who are in a pickle of a situation because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I bet.
1: Kate, okay, so last question, then we're gonna just I'm
0: gonna ask you some stuff about the conference, but we know that interest rates have climbed up and, and we've you know looming recession depending on what market you're in. We are in a recession. like we are in a recession, it, like, <laughs> we in a recession We're in right? it, we're
1: yeah. The bush. yeah. That's true.
0: And then so how does multifamily perform in a downturning market compared to say, a say yeah. detached? detach?
1: Yeah, so if we're looking at the past three recessions, um, if we look at uh, the cove and then we look at the past two before that. Multifamily outperformed every other real estate asset class, hands down. Actually, CBRE did a really good study um, where they looked at multifamily and office, retail, industrial, and multifamily outperformed. And it's one thing to look at how an asset performs in the good times. I would rather look at, hey, well, how does it actually perform when things are going wrong? You look at multifamily, uh, multifamily uh, had the lowest period of downward trending uh, rent. Uh, so in terms of like rent decline, shortest period out of all the commercial asset classes. It also exceeded the previous market's peak faster than any other asset class. So how long until it breaks through the previous record set? Because we've got peaks and valleys in each market cycle. Well, multifamily will break through it faster. Like it, it uh, hits the uptick faster than any, any other asset class. You look at a number of defaults on loans, uh, multifamily is very, very low. Here, Paul Turgeon, who's running a a boot camp at the multifamily conference this year, uh, he worked at CMHC for years in their multifamily department. And like he said his job is boring because (laughs) multifamily doesn't really default (laughs) because it's so stable. So, like for for all those reasons, like multifamily, like if I'm looking to place money in a tumultuous or like, you know, kind of rocky market, like an apartment building is where I would put it. And the worst case scenario, you know, if at the end of five years, the market is like really really bad. Well, it's cash flowing. You're not going to lose money. Just hold it for another three years. Like your your money's relatively safe compared to all the other investment options out there. Yeah, that's, that's a huge differentiating uh, factor for
0: sure. Like that's huge. That's good to know. I know we're at a time. You're the founder of the multifamily conference in Toronto, right? Yeah. And, and you started it during the pandemic. Like, did you did you think this is a crazy idea when you first started <laughs> to envision this?
1: Yeah. So. A uh, funny story. So my girlfriend, now fiance, and I were watching Shark Tank one day, and I turned to her and I said, "You know what? I'm going to have Kevin O'Leary speak at a real estate conference." And this was right when like everything locked down. And she's, oh, "Yeah, whatever." Well, within a couple of days, I had like Kevin O'Leary secured for a real estate conference. I was naive and thinking that uh, we wouldn't have the restrictions we had for so long. But yeah, like it, we basically started the conference. Um, you know, I, I I felt that there was something missing in, in the marketplace for a multifamily specific event. There was nothing existing um, in Canada. And I felt that the, the existing events, it, real estate related, I just never like enjoyed them a lot. Like they were always like in a ballroom, you had the round tables, it was like a speaker with a PowerPoint, like you'd fall asleep in the back row, like they <laughs> sucked. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to make this conference like how I actually want a conference to be. Um, and uh, I got rid of all the stuff I didn't like. Uh, we brought in some like really really good speakers like this year. We' got Grant Cardone, Alex Rodriguez, who owns over 15,000 apartment units. We've got Janet LaPage. Um, you know she she's over three billion now in terms of assets and her management. Um, like we've got some really heavy hitters. Amazing coming. And uh, it's a great time. So yeah, was, was I crazy. Yeah. Did everybody tell me I was crazy? Yeah. And that's the only reason it happened because of my stubbornness. So, so cool, man. That's
0: amazing. And then, yeah. so it's it's May, I think, is it 23rd? You got the dates top of top of mind?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh May 26th to 28th. Um, so what we're doing uh this year is we we're actually running a, a boot camp designed for beginners on the Friday. Uh, because a lot of people come in, they're interested about multifamily, but like They don't have the foundation yet. So on the boot camp, I've got a a great group of speakers coming in to run like all the multifamily fundamentals, all the core stuff. So that way, once you go through the boot camp, when like Grant's on stage, when Janet's on stage, like when whoever's on stage, Marson's on stage, you'll actually understand exactly what they're talking about. So you can get more out of the conference. Uh, So really excited about that. And and at the end of the day, it's all about you know when I started in multifamily, this didn't exist. And I got really frustrated because I didn't have a quality like resource for information. And that's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to put the best people on stage. So if you're interested in in starting a multifamily or leveling up and growing your portfolio, like you come to the conference and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is what I need to do, or this person can help me. Um, and and that's what we're building right now. Amazing. And and there's networking opportunities too, right? Oh yeah. Like, like networking is the number one reason people come. Um, like we attract people from all over Canada, all over the U.S. Like last year, we had every state covered except Alaska, and every province except no, we we had somebody from the Yukon. We didn't have anybody from Northwest Territories. But like we basically attracted people from all over the place. So yeah, if you're looking to network, like I know personally because I've spoken with them, there's passive investors with a lot of money looking to come to place in deals. We've got developers looking to raise money. We've got uh, operators uh, like value add operators. We've got new people coming in. Like everybody in the multifamily space is going to be there. So if you're looking for somebody specific, like they're there. You just have to do the work and find them at at the conference.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. I got my tickets. I'm coming out. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. Like it's going to be so much fun. For sure. I'm looking forward to it. So I had more questions to hit you with. I know you're super busy. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you or find you? Uh, Instagram, that
1: kind of thing? Yeah, like uh, we're growing our YouTube channel. We've got hundreds and hundreds of videos there. Um, So, if you're looking to learn more about uh, multifamily, uh, go to youtube.com slash Seth Ferguson. And as well, you can check out the multifamily conference, uh, multifamilyconference.ca. Don't wait, though, because prices go up every two weeks, or it's like every two and a half weeks, they go up. So, get your ticket now, because they're not going down, they're going the other way. Uh, So, make sure you get your ticket. For sure. Thank you so much for being on the show,
0: fed me into your uh, schedule. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Really enjoyed this. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. follow me on Instagram at peckfordcorey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group. So Craig for short, please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.